leadership ultimately is about kind of everything and, and anything, right? A lot of people talk about leadership. They're really talking about sort of life and personal leadership and what that means. And I also think that, you know, if you think about it, you can say anything about leadership and you're going to be right at some level. You know, you can start a sentence that begins, leadership is all about fill in the blank. You can put anything and people nod their head and go, yeah, I guess that's kind of true. But that doesn't mean it's an insight. Um, and so just sort of, you know, putting this kind of discipline, this forcing function on ourselves during that very long whiteboard exercise that we did. So, okay, let's boil this down to those seven key breakpoints that answers the question, why do people succeed or fail in these roles? Hello, and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking to some authors. And again, we've got some global heavy hitters with us. I've got Adam Bryant and Kevin Scherer. Adam was for 30 years a journalist and editor at the New York Times, and he did a weekly column called From the Corner Office, where he chatted to CEOs about the transferable skills that they'd learned. So not about their industry or their business, but about what lessons life had taught them that were transferable and that they could share. And Kevin is the former CEO of Amgen, the world's largest biotech company. He was the extremely successful CEO, although he does share with us a time when he felt, he, he said himself in, in the conversation we had that he maybe he shouldn't even have survived as he looks back. He thinks he was pretty lucky. And then he went on to teach strategy at Harvard Business School. So no slouches, these guys. What they've done is they've put together a book. And I asked them the first question I asked them is like, why another book on leadership? But they've put together a book, which is if you want to be the best, as a leader, top of your game, not the table stakes, but this is the seven things of maybe 150 things they could have written about. These are the seven hardest things that the best leaders in the world manage to get good at. And so can you develop a simple strategy? Easy to say, hard to do. Can you build a culture? Can you build teams that are true teams? Certainly working with some clients at the moment about some teams that are really just a collection of individuals and really have nothing team about them. Can you lead transformation? Can you learn to listen? Can you handle a crisis? And can you master the inner game of leadership? So we have a great conversation about maybe what Kevin and Adam think are the hardest of these tests. I ask them which ones they think are their own personal kryptonite. And then we get some fantastic book recommendations at the end. So great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. 
Hi, this is Adam Bryant. I'm Managing Director of American Company. We do executive uh, mentoring at the C-suite level and do a lot of work with leadership teams. My background is 30 years as a journalist, uh, and I've written a lot about leadership over the years. Hi, this is uh, Kevin Scher. I was the uh, co-author with Adam of the CEO test. Uh, for 20 years, I was the president, chairman, or CEO of Amgen, which was then and is now the world's largest biotechnology company uh, worldwide in scope and operations, headquartered in California. And for eight years, I was on the faculty at the Harvard Business School, where I taught leadership and strategy management. And currently, I coach uh, large enterprise CEOs uh, with with enterprises that are global in nature. Very good. Guys, thank you very much indeed for coming on. Um, Adam, your new book, CEO Test, how did you guys meet? How did you end up, why, why another book on leadership? Yeah, a bit of context would help. So when I was at the New York Times, um, my day job was managing teams of reporters, but I started a, a side project a decade ago called Corner Office, which was basically a weekly interview series with CEOs. Uh, and the reason it was different in approach, um, it was based on a very simple what if, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their companies or their strategy or industry dynamics, uh, and instead just asked them about lessons they've learned over their course of their career about leadership and how they think about culture and teams and and hiring. So that set me off on a pretty interesting adventure. I interviewed 525 CEOs, um, wrote a couple of books before the current one that I wrote with Kevin. Uh, and it turns out, Kevin, Kevin, I think you were CEO number three I interviewed. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, Kevin made a pretty big impression on me then. He's uh, easily one of the smartest guys I've ever met, smartest people I've ever met. Um, and Kevin has this uh, rare ability to kind of get to the essence of an issue. I've learned over time that if you ask Kevin about literally anything, he'll say these are the three most important things you need to know. Um, and he's usually <laughs> he's usually right. Uh, and so, uh, so, you know, we stayed in touch. We had breakfast. Kevin was probably a few years ago and Kevin yeah. floated this interesting idea about writing a book together and we were off to the races. Yeah, I, th I think Adam nailed it. Uh, I, I'd admired Adam's work uh, for a long time and, and I'd really enjoyed our conversations. And I, by this time, had, had been doing some teaching at Harvard, had, had been writing and thinking about this job. And it's always been a fascinating job to me to describe why, why is it that, that it's so difficult for people how can you get better at it? And then when I started coaching, I saw a real, a real opportunity to try to help people in a practical way. And Adam took a risk on me and, uh, and I'm flattered and, and happy. And we were a great team. And I, I think we've got a book here that's got some really practical advice for all leaders. And, and Dominic, to your question about, you know, why another leadership book, I, you know, at least a couple answers spring to mind. One is that I think Kevin and I make a pretty good team in that we both, you know, we bring something different to it. I, you know, I think of the metaphorical T, if you will, that the 600 plus interviews I've done with leaders now represent kind of the, a breadth of insight and stories and sort of tips and approaches that I've heard over the years. And Kevin just brings this incredible depth of, you know, being a, a leader for so many years, a board director, mentor, professor. Um, and so I, I do, you know, I think we make a pretty good team. And, and I also think 
that we put a very specific aperture on the lens of leadership, which is a big sprawling topic, right? But the way we framed it up was this idea of like, well, what are the tests, if you will, that make or break all leaders? Why do people succeed or fail in these roles? And it's not just about CEOs, it's about all leaders. And then once you identify those kind of breakpoints, then the questions are, you know, well, how do you do those well? And what can we learn from CEOs and other leaders about how to navigate those challenges? And so, you know, I think this combined effect of, of distilling down the complexity of leadership into seven core tests and then adding, not just sort of identifying them, but then saying, okay, well, how do you do this well? Uh, and I think for any aspiring leader, you know, who wants to get better, um, ultimately what we want to do is answer the question about ROI. Like if I'm going to focus some time and energy on getting better as a leader, what should I work on that's going to have the biggest return on investment of that time and energy? And, and the book represents the answer to that question. And when you're working and coaching global CEOs, do, do you see they have these challenges or do you, are you, have they gravitated past this seven? Oh, no, not, not at all, Dominic. Um, what we tried to do is avoid the normal approach of most books on leadership, which tend to be what is leadership, what personal characteristics you need to be a leader. And, and, and we tried to say, look, how do you do this job? And things that, that seem easy, like everybody knows you got to lead a team, turns out that's not so easy. How do you do it? And at every level of CEO, they are, in my experience at least, they're struggling with how do I do that? How do I give feedback to a division executive that might have a $2 billion global division to run? How do I actually coach that person to help them? Or how do I simplify my strategy so everybody in our 60,000 person enterprise can understand it. And people in small companies have exactly those same challenges. They're just at a different scale. So these are the easy to say, really hard to do, and really important things that virtually every CEO I know to one degree or another is, is challenged by them. This is high level stuff. You know, what, what we generally find is that the hard, you know, the simplest questions in business and leadership are the hardest ones. Like, what is your strategy? You know, why are you a team? I mean, all of these things that, you know, they sound simple, but these are the hardest questions. Well, and and also, I, you know, I, I when I'm working with clients, I find they always have a business plan. So they always have an Excel spreadsheet that tells them the revenue today and where that revenue is expected to be in the future. Yeah, that's, that, not plan. that's not a that, plan. That's no, no, not no. a plan. It's just an Excel spreadsheet. But that whole, you know, so when you say, what that's is your strategy? <laughs> it's a financial projection. It's something, isn't it? But it's not, it's not a business model and it's not a how-to. And so I was struck, you know, by some of the things you've said and by, by looking at the book that the book is really a roadmap which says, okay, there's some tough stuff. How are you going to get through that? You know, the... Um, the simplifying strategy, you know, what is your strategy? How do you get to the point where everybody in the organization knows what your strategy is so that they can make decisions without being told what to do? You know, that, um, you know, how do you, how did you end up with seven though? I mean, it felt, you know, could, did you start with 34 and get to seven or? No, we started with 154. <laughs> 
Well, one of the things we did, Dominic, is we said, we said, look, let's not talk about the table stakes stuff. The introduction of the book talks about that. Table stakes are really, really important. For example, energy, honesty, intelligence, resilience, et cetera. We're not trying to minimize those. We're just assuming you've got that stuff. Yeah. And then we tried to say, what are the, the biggest topics under which we can nest the really important lessons? And it, and it turned out it was seven. Adam can, can better describe how to do it. He was the guy who was keeping us on task. I'm, I'm constantly <laughs> filling up the whiteboard and Adam saying, yeah, but uh, he was the good editor. I was the bad reporter. <laughs> And, and part of it, I mean, one of the things we say in the first chapter is that, you know, core skill of leaders is to simplify complexity, right? To take all the, the different things that are going on in the world and the company, um, describe a plan of how you're going to win against your competitors. And, and, you know, I think it is a leader's job to stand up in front of their employees and, and answer the kind of questions that little kids ask in the backseat, right? Like, where are we going and how are we going to get there? Um, and as obvious as that sounds, that's a big challenge for the leader. So if, if we are going to assert that simplifying complexity is a core leadership skill, then we better manifest we better that ourselves. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so yeah, you know, we really did say, okay, these are the seven. And, you know, I think part of the context too, Dominic, is that Leadership is an interesting field, right? It, 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 I often think about the fact that, you know, leadership ultimately is about kind of everything and, and anything, right? A lot of people talk about leadership. They're really talking about sort of life and personal leadership and what that means. And I also think that, you know, if you think about it, you can say anything about leadership and you're going to be right at some level. You know, you can start a sentence that begins, leadership is all about fill in the blank. You can put anything and people nod their head and go, yeah, I guess that's kind of true. But that doesn't mean it's an insight. Um, and so just sort of, you know, putting this kind of discipline, this forcing function on ourselves during that very long whiteboard exercise that we did. So, okay, let's boil this down to those seven key breakpoints that answers the question, why do people succeed or fail in these roles? And Dominic, we, we also decided to try to make this as broadly applicable as possible. If this were a book only for CEOs, there would be maybe a few other chapters like how do you manage your board of directors? But we decided we wanted to make this as accessible to all leaders as we could and still highly, highly relevant to CEOs. So so that was that was the logic. Okay. I'm what didn't make the is there anything that was on that list of 150 that didn't make the list that I don't mean you're disappointed about, but that people might have thought should have been on the list, but you know, or the, or that you like, or eight or nine, that like numbers eight or nine that you are like, you know, where was where was it hard to draw the line? Maybe. Well, I I spend a lot of time with the CEOs I have about how do you manage the board of directors, and that's that is a very specific task that most leaders experience, and how do you manage your boss? But there's lots of good literature on that, and so. That, that might be for me, maybe Adam's got one from his side, but from my side, if you push me for the CEO thing, I would write about, hey, but there's always a chance for another book. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I would just add, I mean, there's, you know, 
just being super clear about what our swim lane was with this, because as I said earlier, I mean, leadership, it's about life. It's about everything. And, and a lot of people do focus, you know, my first book was about this, like, what are the qualities of leaders? Like, what are the capabilities? What are the skills? What are the habits of mind? You know, I find that's an endlessly fascinating discussion. um, But that's not what we were doing in this book. We're, you know, it's really like, what do leaders do? What do they need to do well when they're interacting with their organizations and their teams and employees, that is a very specific swim lane. Um, And just sort of being clear about that, because if you go into those other swim lanes, like I could talk for an hour about the importance of trust and what that means in context of leadership uh, and endlessly fascinating, but again, not for this book. When, when Adam and I first came together, we said, well, gosh, I, somebody must've written this book before, maybe a hundred times. And we found out that, that we couldn't find a book that addressed how do you do the job in a practical, insightful, and fairly comprehensive way that's accessible to CEOs all the way down to people who got their first leadership job. So amazingly, with all the literature on leadership, there is precious little about how do you do it. And I come from the world of practitioners, and I, at my time at Harvard, I was always surprised at how little the academic world understands about how do you do it. We can analyze the effects and do all kinds of regression analysis, but how do you do it? Mm. Not, you know, not so well understood. And do you, do you want to, do you want to say what they are? Do you want to give a like a highlight of the seven and then, and then there's some context. I don't want you to talk about them all though, because then otherwise people don't have to go and buy the damn book. No, that's fine. I'll just run through the seven. So the first is like, can you develop a simple plan around strategy? The the second one is about um, building a a sort of high performing culture. The third one is about teams and making, you know, building teams that actually operate like a teams, like a team. We have a chapter on driving transformation, about listening, about managing a crisis. And the final one, we shift from what do you do as a leader to how you need to be as a leader, which is a very important distinction. That last chapter is about kind of the inner game. Um, you know, and I look, if, if you sort of look across all leaders, we're not suggesting that everybody needs to score a perfect 10 on these. Um, and people have their strengths and weaknesses. So some people are going to be better, you know, at listening than others. So, but I, I will say we, we did start the book with this first chapter around strategy, because that is the cornerstone of the foundation. If you don't get that strategy right in a way that's clear to everybody so that they understand how their work is connected to it, and that they're driving ahead and, you know, what, what the key challenges are and, and what are the priorities and how do you measure progress? If you don't get that right, nothing's going to work. I spent the most time and laid awake at night the most over elements related to team management, selection, coaching, evaluation, et cetera. So I, I think in the job itself, the CEO is going to spend most of his or her time, and appropriately so, on the team. And and one of the things I found out, and I really believe, is there just is no substitute for the best team. You can't overcome a bad team. And, and the quality of your enterprise is going to be defined by the quality of the top team. And I mean the top in a big company, 100 people. So simplifying complexity is intellectually really tough. Not many people are good at it, and you got to get it right. But the thing that is just day in and day out most difficult is everything around the team, as it should be. 
I'm fascinated always by the intellectual uh, appreciation of that fact, you know, that the CEO would say, yeah, well, obviously I have to have the best team. And then you actually get, you scratch it and you say, so have you got the best team? And it's like, ah, now then that's a difficult and interesting question. I wish you hadn't asked me that because I'm not sure that I can answer it. So how do you, how do they, if from your perspective, how do they go about fixing, fixing that? First of all, you have to have the, the, the true desire to have the best team you can have, not, not kind of the best team I can get along with or et cetera. You, you got to say, I've got to have the best team, sort of like a, a sports franchise general manager or coach is going to say, we're not going to win if we don't have the best team. So that's a mental attitude. It's an intentionality you've got to have. Most people don't have it. Two, you've got to know what good looks like. You've, you've got to be very specific in your own mind. What does good look like and why do I think that? And it's not just about can you implement the plan? It's can you build a team? Can, do you have a vision for the future? Are you a role model for the values and what the uh, enterprise stands for? Do you have the good judgment to take risk but not be foolhardy? Are you a good communicator? The list goes on. We, we, could, we could construct it. And then you've got to be able to actually evaluate the team and be able to coach them in a way they can hear and be honest enough to point out where they've got to get better. And then finally, you've got to have the courage to make a change when you have to. And to be able to do that well, you've always got to be looking for talent. I mean, this is an all-consuming kind of job. And no team will last forever. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. And so at least once a year, you got to ask yourself, have I got a team that I can put on the field and win or not? And there's processes to do that. We, we, could, we could spend a lot of time, Dominic, talking about this, I know. But it, it's, a, it's a big, complex task that people often shy away from. It is. And so you know, what you're saying is, look, until, don't wait until you get the top job. Whatever, wherever you are as a leader, challenge yourself always and say, have I got the best people? That's the one question I'm going to ask rising leaders. Tell me about your team. How do you pick people? How do you evaluate people? What was your toughest decision? Who are you most proud of? And I'll just add in our consulting work, we do a lot of work with leadership teams. And another example of the simplest question, sometimes being the hardest, that we often will ask the teams, why are you a team? Um, and that seems self-evident. It's like, well, we're a team because we're the leadership team. It's like, no, no, why are you a team? Um, and sort of, the, you know, as we all know, the bad movie version of teams in practice is, you know, you know, every other week meetings, the CEO sits at the head of the table, then people take their turn doing report outs where everybody is, you know, glancing at their phone under the table. Um, but to, to me, there's only one right answer to the question, why are we a team, which is to accomplish things that only the team can achieve together. Um, this sort of big, complicated tasks that require cross-functional disciplines to go after. But again, that doesn't happen in a lot of companies. It's, you know, to use Kevin's words, like it has to be intentional. Oh, well, totally. That whole, you know, that connection from what is the purpose of this business through to, you know, like what are we trying to achieve as a team? Often I see teams either, you know, further down the organization or even leadership teams. And it's like watching small children play football. You know, everyone's running around after the ball 
Um, and then also, you can also be in a position where the striker scores two goals and the team lose 5-2 and the striker thinks he had a great day. He doesn't, he doesn't feel like his team lost because he's, in, he's the head of sales and sales are winning or he's the head of finance and you know the, we managed to do month end at seven days in. And it's that, that thing that pulls the team together. It's like, you know, how can the team, what is this team doing and, and how does the team measure success? Yeah, the, the success measures, and what you just described is common. At, at senior teams, the success measures have to be things that we hold collectively. I'm a big fan, as soon as you can do it, that the top team is measured on exactly the same things. So it's impossible for the salesperson to have a good a good year and nobody else you know, does. And the other thing I'd say that that is really hard is having a team that's diverse. I mean, really diverse in terms of, of background, how do they think, not, not the things we mostly talk about, which is gender, ethnicity, et cetera. That's important too, but, but point of view and, and, and way of thinking. Teams tend to be created in the image of the person leading the team. That's just a natural kind of human reaction. And, and the great leaders can see through that and, and, and really build diverse, effective teams. That is hard, but that, that's the challenge. And I think, you know, another, Kevin made the point that it is all consuming as it should be. And, and one mm. reason is that, you know, without that, people will just sort of default, default into bad behavior. Because, you know, if you think of a C-suite leadership team, a lot of the people on the team have spent most of their careers leading their own teams. And it's very different muscles to play on a team versus leading a team. Um, and there has to be this sort of constant counterweight from the CEO, because otherwise, I mean, I, I always joke that there's a reason why HBO ran Game of Thrones on Sunday night, which is to get people ready for work on Monday, right? <laughs> because, you know, otherwise, that's what it is, right? That's what leadership teams like this is a zero sum game. And for me to win, I got to take you down. And like, I know we're all going to say we're going to have each other's back, but that's not how I'm going to operate. Um, and again, if you sort of let things happen, it will often default for that because people are fighting for resources. They're fighting for Kevin's attention when he was a CEO. So you have to create the counterweights. What's your advice on how do you get that uh, team? How do you get a team of individuals to come together so that the team thing is important is the you know how do you how do you make that happen you know how do you get the head of sales to play nicely with the rest of the people because they historically they've as they've come up through the ranks you know you've been a sales manager regional sales manager sales director you know your team has been the people beneath you and now for the first time we're saying actually your team is not your function your team is the people who sit around this table the first thing you have to do as CEO is, is realize that you have to teach the team um, how we're going to operate and you have to mean it. Um, I sat in the book. There's this little vignette that, that people smiled about, but it's true. Uh, when I became CEO of Amgen, we, we had a new team. I'd been president for, for eight years, so I, I sort of knew how things were. And I recruited a new team. We had a dinner and I said, Okay, team, here's how it's going to be. Uh, no politics. And I described what politics meant. And it was much of what you just said and Adam said in Game of Thrones. And I said, you know, I got this job because I'm a pretty good politician. So when you try to do those things of undercutting people, 
uh, going outside the meeting and saying something different than inside the meeting, allowing your teams to fight with other teams, all that kind of stuff. That'll be totally transparent to me. You'll be like your four-year-old kids trying to work you. And if you do that, I'm going to fire you. And I said it kind of in a lighthearted way, but they knew I meant it. So the first thing I would say is, and the most important thing is, the CEO has to define what are acceptable team dynamics and team behaviors. The CEO themselves has to model those behaviors, and they've got to enforce them. And if somebody is just going to be a backstabber, you got to fire them. And that takes guts when somebody's delivering the numbers. But the CEO has got to define the standards, model them, and enforce them. There is no other way uh, or you're going to devolve to the kind of behaviors we've seen so much. In, in our consulting work, we, um, you know, we often ask the leadership teams we work with, like, what do you want from each other? And we pretty much always hear the same answer, which is like, we want to have each other's backs, right? There's got to be that sort of trust. And, and I think that starts with the person at the end of the table, as Kevin just described, you know, setting the tone, making clear that these are the guardrails of behavior and there are there will be no exceptions. It starts with that. Um, but I think you can also build on that. You know, we talked to John Donahoe, who's the CEO of um, Nike right now. When, when he was at ServiceNow, the leadership team at an offsite, um, they wrote a social contract for each other, you know, basically got out the whiteboards and say, what are the behaviors that we're going to expect from each other um, to support each other and that we can hold each other accountable if we fall, you know, down. And they even took the extra step of painting them on the walls outside the executive offices for everybody to see. And so to me, that was an interesting tool uh, just to sort of say, like, again, to sort of counteract that it's like, okay, we say we want to have each other's backs, but what does that mean? And I've, I've got enormous respect for John, enormous. And I think that process of the team collectively defining what's the acceptable set of behaviors is a, is a powerful way to do it. But the thing I'm always going to want to know is, so what? Did you really enforce it or did you have a nice kumbaya session, put it on the wall in your office and then go right back to knifing each other with no consequence? It has to be made real. It can't just be aspirational. And that falls to the CEO and it's hard to do. I mean, this is the setting of culture in an organization. You know, the way the C-suite behave, so the organization will follow. You know, are we late for meetings do we make promises we don't keep? Do we sit in a meeting room and text each other, text each other behind, you know, behind the back of the speaker? Are we prepared to be straight with each other? Like all of this is this is setting the culture for the whole organization, not just not just the team. No, you, you're you're right, and so many places assert a bunch of things, put it on the wall, and that's it. And then they go back to it is it is so hard to actually say, here's the standards we're going to hold ourselves to, and then do it, evaluate it, coach it, enforce it. And, and I, th I think there's a sports analogy here because I often think of sort of culture and the sort of, ex you know, the norms and behaviors and values. And in many ways, it's sort of like saying, look, we're going to play this sport and here's the rules, right, for the sport. So let's all get on the on the field and play this sport and, you know, work with each other. And to me, the difference is like what happens when there's no refs on the field, right? Then the dirty players start playing dirty and they get away with stuff and they, everybody else goes, oh, so we're playing dirty here? Okay. Um, and that, 
you know, in a culture like that, it brings out the worst in people, right? And I think at our core, we all have kind of our best versions of ourselves and, you know, who we are on not such good days. Um, but to me, like, you know, to, to underscore Kevin's point is that it has to be clear that there will be no exceptions and the rules will be enforced and the refs will be watching. I, I think what you have to do is have a process, and it, and it may be informal, where you throw yellow flags once in a while. I like Adams, you know, their refs and rules. You know, if you get enough yellow flags, somebody taps you on the shoulder and said, you know, the next thing you're going to do is get a red card and you're going to go home. And and so th there is a, you know, unrepentant felon kind of consequence. Integrity, you don't get two chances. And some other things, you don't get two chances. But th this is a high art to have the rules, have them understood and embraced, and have them sensibly enforced. That, that, that's a big test for any leader. Uh, it is, and I, I find, uh, certainly with the teams I'm working with, often we pick, I was just waving some red and yellow cards at you there, Kevin. Um, I, because, because we're all on Zoom and all meetings are virtual at the moment, then you know that's one of the tools that we've been using with ourselves and with clients because you know once we've agreed what the behavior is you know actually waving a yellow card at people you know that if they buy into it it's helpful you know if they if we've all agreed to do this stuff it's 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 a light-hearted thing but it's like you know i don't know you said you weren't going to monopolize the conversation there you go you you know there's your yellow card do that again you're you're, you're off the meeting that's good well, you know that is a good we, we used to do that too you know we we you try to smile and say, hey, I'm going to throw a yellow flag on that one. Yeah. But it works. Uh, you're absolutely right. I, th I was going to ask you what proportion of companies behave this way, right? Because I, you know, when I look at certainly, you know, it, startup companies, in some ways it's easier because you have this really strong culture. And if you can, if you can have it and define it and maintain it, what you then find as you get bigger is people come in from, from big corporates and they've, you know, they've grown up with their elbows out, you know, fight or be beaten to death. And so, you know, they, you know, what proportion of businesses that you see or meet are able to uh, behave in this hard, but fair way, as opposed to what I think is more normal, which is stab each other in the back and then smile. I, I just think it's, this is very hard for companies to get right. And I think the ones that do have, you know, something that we would all call a high performing culture and that are in the distinct minority. Um, I, I just think this stuff is really hard. And, you know, so many leaders are, are overwhelmed by everything. Startup founders, when they're building the company, they're trying to ship the product and get money in the door. And culture is often, uh, you know, the last thing they think about. I, I often think about story, you know, now, unfortunately, late, you know, Tony Shea from Zappos, but I remember him telling me the story about like the first company he built and sold to Microsoft for, I think, $300 million. He, he said it got to the point where it's like, you know, the alarm would go off and I would just hit the alarm and go back to sleep because I didn't want to go to work at my own company. 
Um, and, you know, it's the kind of thing, like, again, it keeps coming back to this word intentional. Do you recognize that this is important and that you need to spend time and energy on it and be thoughtful about how you do it? Because if you don't, the culture is just going to emerge as kind of a collection of everybody's backgrounds. And, um, you know, without it, you know, people will drag each other down if they start picking up on it. it's like, oh, so that's how we're playing here. Okay, that's how you get ahead. So and then that will start bringing out the worst in everybody rather than the best in everybody, which to me at the end of the day, like that's what a culture is about. Just to bring out the best in everybody, help them achieve things that maybe collectively they never thought they could. That's where the magic, that's where the inspiration comes from. I'd second what Adam says, Dominic. I, I'd look at it a different way. I'd say everybody struggles and I'd start asking questions if I'm a board member uh, what is the culture here? How do you know that it's actually being lived on the ground? Where is the social data, et cetera? And so many companies just write the things down, put it on the wall, and then just you know get back to the no rules game. Is the CEO intentional about it? It'll be imperfect, but is the CEO intentional? Do they care, et cetera? Or is it kind of left to the HR department and what did you know, what the latest survey is saying, who cares? So it's on a spectrum. Everybody struggles. Uh, not easy. Okay. The, the other thing we talked about briefly earlier was this simplification of strategy. What's, you've got some good examples there. You know, I mentioned earlier the simple question of like, what is your strategy? And and part of what I've come to understand uh, in this new chapter in my career as a consultant, you go into big companies and and the word strategy is a Rorschach test. It's a classic inkblot and it means different things to different people. And sometimes when you ask people what their strategy is, and you see this and you can see them on the websites of Fortune 200 companies, their strategy documents, it's very high level, very general description of what they do. Or they're just kind of like empty platitudes, like, of course, you're going to pursue, you know, high yield investments and all these other things. So, you know, problem one is like they're too high in altitude. Problem two is they're too granular. You ask people their strategy and they'll show you a list of 10 priorities for this quarter. They're too granular. Um, and so to, to us, there's this kind of missing layer. And, and for lack of a better term, we call it a simple plan. But it just answers this, this question of like, what are you trying to achieve? What is the goal? Um, the best model that I've seen uh, came from a guy named Dinesh Paliwal. He's former CEO of Harman International. And he makes it a one-page exercise, like give us a concrete summary statement of what you are trying to achieve, not what your priority is, what you are trying to achieve, the three or four big levers you have to pull to achieve it, the three or four big challenges you have to overcome, just like let's get that reality check, and finally a scoreboard to measure progress. And we, when we share that with our clients, there's a real aha moment, and it, it grounds everybody in this sort of this is the act of simplifying complexity because there's way too many strategy decks that I've seen slides where it's like, here's our seven bullet points on one side. Usually there's like a colored tiered pyramid on the other with a, you know, corkscrew arrows and all this stuff. And you look at it and go, yeah, I guess that kind of makes sense. But literally nobody remembers it 30 seconds later. Well, and certainly when you go and talk to the, when you go and talk to Betty in reception and say, what do you think the company strategy is? And she just looks at you like you've, like you're mental or you've come from Mars or you speak a foreign language. It's like that. The receptionist should be able to tell you what this company strategy is. 
And, you know, Dominic, this this idea of a simple plan, as we say in the in the chapter, is really part of a of a bigger skill that that all leaders need, which is to simplify complexity and be right. Uh, What happens so often is in a complex situation, people try to demonstrate how intelligent they are by making it even more complex. And the really, really intelligent people are able to say, look, for example, at, at Amgen, a biotechnology company, human biology is gigantically complicated. But let me tell you, here's exactly how Alzheimer's disease happens. This is the exact place we're trying to intervene. And this is exactly how, and this is how we're going to know if it works. This skill of simplifying complexity is a is kind of a Swiss army knife, as, as we say in the book, of dealing as a leader with so many things that are uncertain, they're dynamic, they're incomplete, and you've got to make decisions. And, and not many people are very good at that. They tend to go into activity traps, I'm busy, et cetera, but they don't have the big idea. Well, and, and to, to uh, Adam's point earlier, in, in that staff meeting, what they do is they spend each week reporting out about how busy they've been rather than, rather than what, we, what concrete steps we've made in the last two weeks towards our objective. You know, in the UK, what... Boris, Boris Johnson, the prime minister, strikes me as having a simple plan. Let's get everybody vaccinated as fast as we can and really lean on the NHS to get it done. Oh, Absolutely. Well, and also now he's he's able to keep giving people good news. You know, it's actually going faster than they thought. And he he knows how to keep score. That's the first time anybody ever used NHS and simple in the same paragraph in the same (laughs) sentence. You know, I'd, I'd also add, Dominic, that, you know, if I had a magic wand, I'd probably get rid of the word priority in, in, in the corporate world because, you know, and, and make it a, a, instead about what you are trying to achieve. You know, you're sort of asking the question like 12 months from now, when you look back, what are the three things you need to have achieved for it to be a good year? The problem with the word priorities is that you can, that list can start growing. I mean, one of my colleagues who runs our leadership practice, he says a client, he said a client once handed them him a list of 182 priorities, <laughs> right? And to me, you know, I've, I've looked at a lot of priority, priority lists and there's a poker tell that you can see and you look for the bullet points that begin with the two words, continue to dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and if like, if you got to continue, if that means like, that's like, human beings saying a priority is to breathe and eat and sleep. Like you're going to do that. Um, But what are you really focusing on? So just having that framework on it really clarifies the discussion. I find a showstopper question is from the leader. Yeah. Okay, great. It's six months from now. Exactly. What does good look like and how are we going to measure it? Know it. That's a showstopper question usually. But you can't, as a team, you can't hold each other accountable. If, if when we don't, if when we sit together, we don't know what good looks like and how, how are you going to judge my success or my performance? If we don't specify that at the beginning, then I'll just fudge my way through that meeting two quarters from now. I'll just tell you how busy I was. Make you feel sorry for me. So what, um, or maybe this is a better question. Which one of these is your kryptonite? your personal kryptonite? 
I'm going to ask Kevin to uh, to tell the story about listening because there was a, a point in his career that maybe it was his kryptonite, but it was a powerful lesson, and there's an amazing story behind it around listening. Yeah, it it was almost fatal for me. It's actually kind of amazing that it wasn't. Um, I, I was uh, a horrible listener, but I didn't I didn't really know it. Um, I thought that because uh, I believed I was fast and I sort of knew what was going on, I could help you out by completing your sentences and get to the really important stuff, which is me telling you what to do. And, and amazingly, that worked for a long time. And then we had at our company uh, a real crisis. And one of our drugs that had been long in the market started to develop at higher doses some problems. And I just, I just didn't hear it. I didn't see it. I was in denial. I would tell people to fix it and go on about my business. And I realized that I had created an environment through both the way I scheduled things and the way I behaved in the environment, the way I did or didn't follow up. I created a a pretty incomplete, even potentially fatal flawed listening ecosystem where I didn't get the true facts. I didn't get enough of them. I didn't pay enough attention. And then it hit me one day that I should stop being such an interactive listener and I should should listen for comprehension and try to make it so that the people who were talking with me felt quite comfortable and encouraged to tell me what they think. The second thing I realized is that most of the stuff that came to me was biased in a positive way or was incomplete which is what happens to most CEOs. So I knew I had to set up a complex or extensive, it wasn't that complex, an extensive listening ecosystem where I had lots of sources of information. And so once I decided that I needed to be listening for comprehension and I had to have a multi-element listening system, uh, things got a lot better. And that was my kryptonite. And, and it, it, it's amazing looking back that I survived. And, and I'm not sure I should have, but I did. So I'm, I'm a big advocate for, for listening. And the chapter in the book on listening, I think, has, has a lot of good things to reflect on for, for, for virtually anybody, whether you're a leader or not, but especially if you're a leader. Adam, is one of those yours? One of, your, one of, the, one of the seven your kryptonite? You know, I, I, the inner game of leadership is a challenge. It's a sort of staying um, calm and um, centered in the midst of everything that's going on. And, you know, uh, like Kevin, it, it certainly wasn't fatal, but I was a, um, you know, as a editor on some pretty busy desks at the New York Times for uh, about 11 years. Um, and in terms of things that like I would want to be better at and would want to work on over time is just that sort of like, you know, like just kind of staying centered when there's, when you're getting hit from everything and second guessed by a million people. And, um, you know, I, I navigated through that. Um, uh, and I'd like to think I was pretty good at my job, but it just, in terms of like, you know, if you're asking me like, what do I wish I was better at? I, I think it would be that. Um, and it's interesting too, like the first chapter about simplifying complexity and, you know, interesting kind of the parallels um, in the corporate world and journalism. And I, 
I think Kevin uh, and and my brain is kind of wired um, in in the same way that I, I'd like to. I'm going to suppress my Canadian modesty here for a sec. I think we're both pretty good at like getting to the essence of an issue, um, and being an editor in a newsroom is actually great training for that. Because you know when I would talk to reporters about their ideas, um, it was always about me trying to get to the essence of that. Like, what's the ten word pitch on that? Um, I used to ask these questions like, what is the gooey center of that candy? Like. Like what is the best, you know, idea at the core of what you're pitching me so that I could then go in a meeting with 40 editors and pitch the story. And I knew that I had about 12 words to get their attention. Um, and just that was an incredible discipline for me, for me year after year. Um, you know, and so it, and as Kevin said, I mean, it's, it is a skill that not many people have. Like just when you ask people like, well, what's the 12 word pitch on that idea? You can sometimes see the gears in their brain turning and kind of scrambling to get to the essence of it. And some people can, they say, yeah, I get it. Like, this is it. And it's kind of the elevator pitch idea. And other people just, you know, five minutes later, they're still struggling to, to sort of capture the essence of something. But I, I think, Dominic, that, that the kryptonite generally is crisis management. Crisis management, by definition, is something you probably have very little skill at. Crisis management takes a focus and a presence that is rare. And, and I think if I were gonna say, what's most people's kryptonite, uh, it's crisis management because it is so, so hard. Yeah, okay. Um, guys, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier in your lives or careers? Kevin, over to you. You know, never, that, is such, that, that, is, that is such a vast field for a guy whose current wife is his former wife that I'm not sure where to start. But um, I, I wish I had listened more and been less self-centered. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll share an insight that um, dawned on me later in life that I think if I had known earlier it would have been a light bulb moment uh, for just understanding what management is about. So, um, you know, I, I think society in general has something that uh, perception of something that's slightly wrong, which is that most people think of children as young uh, adults, right? They're just sort of, you know, they're on their way to being becoming adults. And at some point, the dime dropped for me. It's like, wait a minute, adults are just older children. <laughs> And, that's part and, of the all guys are 12 years old truth. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but but once you realize that, and, you know, I, I interviewed a CEO years ago, um, Nell Minow, and, you know, she told me something when I interviewed her. She said, you know, you realize when you're when you're the boss and people, you know, one of your employees knocks on your door and says, can I talk to you? Like, usually it's one of two reasons. It's like, look what I did. And you say, wow, you did it in red. Can you do it in blue now? And the other reason is like, <laughs> they're playing with my stuff. And you say, well, did you talk to them? Um, and so, you know, look, 
at, at the end of the day, kids, adults, we're kind of all motivated by the same things. And, and I think if you hang around a playground, you know, a long, en- long enough, you know, you get to some insights about core human motivation and behavior. You hear kids say, like, I want to go first, right? Like, it's just the saddest stuff. Um, what are we doing next? Um, you know, let me do myself. You know, my favorite color is purple, too. You know, all these sort of basic emotions of little kids, they're the same things that drive us as, as adults. And when you understand that um, as, as a leader, it sort of helps clarify what people need. Yes. Well, and I also think that what's also true building on that is the, if you say to somebody, you have to do it because I'm your dad, then you have to do it because I'm the boss is as equally ridiculous. And as we were all children once and our fathers probably said that to us and we probably rolled our eyes at them. So, uh, um, guys, fantastic book that you've written, but you must have picked up and scanned through a few books along the way yourselves that had an impact on you. What um, what should people pick up and, and read? Maybe uh, a couple of books from each of you. Yeah, look, I'm a fan of Jim Collins. I, I know Jim and interviewed a couple of times over the years, and, and I think there's a lot of good lessons in Good to Great, Built to Last. Um, I also, you know, I love kind of adventure books, and In the Heart of the Sea by Nathaniel Philbrick is probably one of my favorite books. But I'm also, you know, in, you're doing a podcast, Dominic. I, I sort of try to approach life as a podcast. And, you know, I love, you know, I just think if, if you're a good listener and you ask people simple questions, like, what have you learned? Like, you can just learn so much. So I, I try and, uh, you know, books are great, but I, I also find, at least my style is that I find super efficient. Like, if you can just talk to somebody and ask them those simple questions and kind of download their wisdom and their insights, to me, like, that is what has made me uh, sort of, you know, to the degree I'm any smarter now than I was 20 years ago. That's what's helped me. Well, what did you say, 522 CEOs you interviewed? For Corner Office, and it's probably over 600 by now with my other series. So um, I've learned a lot, including from this guy, Kevin. So, <laughs> Kevin, what would you recommend from the bookshelf? I've only got one business book. And, and Adam mentioned it. I read it in 1995. It had gigantic impact on me. It was called Good to Great by Jim Collins plus others. And it was really important to me. I, I think in today's world, there's still room for the long form. And there's still things that have been written that are enduringly important. And I'd, I'd give three books. Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton shows what's possible in a human life, somebody who came from nothing and achieved great things. I think Middle March, hard as that book is to read, is as illuminating about society as anything I've read. And Moby Dick is unmatched as literature, period. So if I'm going to, you know, tell my 14-year-old grandson to read two books, those are the two. And then later when he gets into business, if he does, good to great. Fantastic. Guys, thanks very much indeed for coming on and giving me your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Dominic. Okay. Thanks a lot, Dominic. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.